This is an ABC podcast. There, there is no other alternative for a Prime Minister than the rule of law. To Scott Morrison, stop dealing with this as a political problem and start doing the right thing. Not so much a tin air as a wall of concrete. Having children doesn't guarantee a conscience. Women who have put up with this rubbish and this crap for their entire lives. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful. Welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis, the host of RN Drive and Afternoon Briefing and The Party Room. And The Party Room. And I'm Fran Kelly from RN Breakfast and The Party Room. And we're going to be joined here in The Party Room by Phil Curry soon. He's the political editor with the Australian Financial Review. And we're going to talk with Phil about, we've got some movement this week on those, all those reports, you remember, sparked by the allegations from Brittany Higgins about an alleged rape in Parliament House. But PK, um, I think before Phil joins us, we should talk about Melbourne, because I'm sure everyone in Melbourne only wants to talk and think about one thing at the moment. That's the COVID cluster that's broken out um, and the implications of that, the vaccination rollout more broadly. But right now, 26 cases 80 exposure sites. This is moving pretty quickly. How, how, what's the feeling there in Melbourne? I don't know how to say this in any um, good way, but the, the feeling in Melbourne is of utter devastation and the collective PTSD trauma of the very long lockdown last year, which I think no one can really understand unless they live through it. I know many interstate people listen to this podcast and are very, very good people who have tried to reach out and understand, but it is... It is. It has left deep scars for many people. It has huge ramifications. Yes, we had to do it. So this is not about contesting what happened or mm. why it needed to happen, but you have to be real about the consequences. So to go into another lockdown, which we're recording this Thursday morning, is looming. It's about to be announced. All the parameters, we'll find out, but it's not the point. The point is it's real. It's going to happen. And I think Melbournians are very tired, Fran. The other part of this, and this is we can talk about the sort of the, the broader implications, is what is different this year is that we've got a vaccine and Melbournians are very frustrated that we have a vaccine that they see in the United States and the United Kingdom is being rolled out fast into people's arms, yet here we have very low vaccination rates, not only in Victoria but across the country, of course, and it feels like, why again? Why does it have to feel like 2020 when we do have a vaccine? We are nowhere near herd immunity. It feels rather bleak because of that different dimension. Last year's long lockdown when we embarked on that process, it was a different dimension. We didn't have a vaccine. We didn't mm. have some of these solutions. So I think you cannot divorce the new science and the new approaches around the world from that. And I think that's part of the bleakness that people think, why again, why does it have to look like this? Well, yeah, on the one hand, bleakness, and then perhaps on the other hand, hope. I mean, I think you're right. I spoke with epidemiologist Tony Blakely from, from Melbourne uh, this week, and he made the point, the clear link there, that if the vaccination, if, if more of the Victorian population had been vaccinated by now, the response from government would be different. For instance, his sort of rough back of the envelope equation was if roughly a quarter of the population had been vaccinated by now, that's probably equivalent to mask wearing. So you wouldn't have to bring in that measure, for instance. Mm. So what's happened? The rollout, we know, had a rocky start. 
But then vaccine hesitancy became a real issue. So it was kind of on us in one sense because people got worried about the AstraZeneca rollout in particular once they learned about the blood clot news. You know, people got very worried about that. It's pretty clear this week, though, the Melbourne cluster has motivated more people to go get the vaccine. I think we've seen the big queues in Melbourne now, whereas last week those um, vaccination hubs were pretty much empty. And around the country, too, I think that's the messaging. Well, look what's happening. We've got to get it. But, you know, Labor's jumped on this. It says there's questions still about supply and delivery. Others are pointing out we've got more than a million doses on hand, apparently, across the country, but only half a million people uh, of those shots are getting into people's arms every week. So what's the what's the disconnect there? And meanwhile, the federal health minister is Greg Hunt is sort of on a rampage to point out, well, disputing that, talking about record vaccinations happening over 100,000 100, injections this week on one day. But it's still patchy because then we got the news this week, which I was found gobsmacking. There's 29 aged care homes in Victoria where people still haven't been vaccinated. You know, how come that's happening? Um, And I've got listeners writing in saying in Melbourne they can't get Pfizer, even though they're eligible. I put that out on air. I got contacted by the minister suggesting that the Victorian Operations Centre says they've got plenty of Pfizer on hand, tens of thousands of jabs, in fact. So there's clearly a problem with A, communication, but B, a smooth supply rollout. Like people in some places are feeling like they can't find it, they can't get it, and yet the statistics would reveal that we've got plenty, plenty to give out. Yeah, and it's incredibly frustrating. Look, there is nothing like... A potential third wave. I won't call it a third wave yet because no, we that's are not hopeful. No, that's I think it is important the language um, that we can stomp on this thing, right? I'm going to smash it. I'm, I'm very passionate about smashing it. And I know lots of my fellow citizens here down south want to do the same. But as we look to the potential of a third wave, we want, there's nothing like that to want, make you want to get vaccinated, as you say. It changes the dynamic. It's not just, oh, we're in a zero community. I can put that off. There is a sense of urgency and you feel it inside of you. I am desperate to get the jab, Fran, but I'm under 50 and I'm not eligible. Mm. Um, now, I would take the AstraZeneca vaccine today, right now. I would walk out on this podcast and I would get that AstraZeneca vaccine in my <laughs> arm right now, but I can't and I've tried. I hopefully can soon. I think they will have to change some of these rules because some of us, we are knowledgeable. We do the reading. I'm not worried about, I'm not saying it can't happen, but I think it's a very remote risk of a blood clot. And I, I reckon my risk of getting COVID now, given the numbers in Melbourne, are higher. And so I think we need to change our settings. And that takes the federal government and the state government, you know, remember when we were having two week, two meetings a week and then they got cancelled yeah. within a couple of weeks? And now we've got this situation in Melbourne and now, you know, we've got the blame game about quarantine again, which is so fatiguing, I want to fall asleep, but it's still so important. Sort it out. We have been in this pandemic long enough. Sort out some of these fundamentals. If we know that the hotel quarantine system, even if it's overwhelmingly successful, has some leaks which are diabolical like this one out of South Australia, if we know it, if they're not fit for purpose, fix it. Fix it. Fix, fix the ventilation, it. fix the quarantine, all of those issues. But, but PK, you bring up a good point because there's another issue here, I think. One is about messaging but also consistency. I mean, you're in Melbourne, you can't get the AstraZeneca jab because you're under 50. In Sydney, quite a few people between the ages of 40 and 50 are getting 
their jab, they're getting their Pfizer jab now. You know, they put their name on an emergency list and as gaps come up in the Pfizer rollout, they're being invited to come in. I know, you know, some people who've been able to get that injection. So New South Wales is being much more flexible in who can get the injection and when, and perhaps that's what needs to change more. But we need to have some national guidance around this and consistency, I think, because it's very confusing. And there's been a few points of confusion this last couple of weeks. You know, we're talking about the vaccine hesitancy and then suddenly we've got the health minister, Greg Hunt, a few days ago saying that, you know, over 50s who are apprehensive about getting AstraZeneca because, you know, we spoke last week about it being AstraZeneca hesitancy, not just vaccine hesitancy. Well, they can wait until later in the year because we're getting shipments from Pfizer and Moderna and there'll be plenty. Now, That was a message that seemed to undercut everything else the government had been saying. And then just a couple of days later, he appeared to change that tune. The message is very simple. Do not wait to be vaccinated. If you are in a qualifying group, uh, if you're in the over 50s, please come forward now. That has been our position. That is our position. And that will be our position. So... You know, that seemed to be a pretty confusing message. And already, I think the uh, cat was out of the bag that the message had been, we're going to get lots of Pfizer from October. So if you are hesitant, wait. And now we've got the Melbourne cluster and suddenly that there's a big break on that message. And it's all about just get the AstraZeneca as quickly as you can. Just contemplate for a second, Fran. Like, even if, if they've tried to reset that message at a federal level, Greg Hunt and others, just contemplate for a second that they were even entertained telling people to wait till after winter. Mm. Sorry, but are they joking? We know, look at the world. Seriously, it's it's all around us. Mm. Waiting till after winter was ever suggested. And now, of course, Melbourne brings it right back on people's radar, not only if you're living through it like I am, but even around the country, people mm. are like, oh, wow, this thing's real. It's not, we're not zero anymore. You know, border closures and the ramifications around the country, the chaos, the despair, the implications for people's jobs, the economy. I mean, this is real. And we had, I, I think it's outrageous, actually, that, that that was even suggested. I think the only message that ever should have been sent should have been, if you're eligible, do it now. That's the only message. That's it. Finished. And I don't think that a federal government or, or any government should be actually providing opportunities for vaccine shopping at a time of crisis. Now, many of our listeners, and I know you're getting it too, say, hang on a minute, I should have the right to to choose between vaccines, right? I'm not contesting whether you should have had that right. I think it would have been more ideal. But given the choices we now are are living with, Mm. I think the choice is very clear. And that's why I say I would take the AstraZeneca jab. That doesn't mean that I wouldn't like more choices. I mean, I'm, I'm big for choice. I like choice. But if I can't get the choice, I know what my choice is, which is not to get COVID-19. Yeah, and there's, you know, evidence coming in and Norman Swan speaks regularly about this right across the ABC and in the Coronacast podcast about as we get more information, uh, as more vaccines are, are out there in the world and it seems as though there's some strong efficacy from both AstraZeneca and Pfizer even against the variants, though the Pfizer one is much stronger against the variants, but even AstraZeneca will protect you from, you know, serious illness and, um, and certainly death, it would seem. So there are arguments for, pick a vaccine, any vaccine, just get it in your arm. There's certainly that argument. It's not unrealistic, people's fears about blood clots. That's not unrealistic. These side effects can be dramatic. I think think that's right. I don't mean to 
undermine no. that. But just to put it in perspective, though. Yeah, and I think the Melbourne cluster has changed it all because part of the, the thing that was realistic was people were looking around Australia, well, there's no COVID here. There's none in the community. Well, suddenly, within a day, of course, there is, and that refocuses everything. Changes absolutely everything. Should we bring in our guest? Let's do it. <laughs> Phil Curry, the Australian Financial Review's political editor. Welcome to the party room. Uh, thanks, Patricia. Phil, three reports this week mm. that uh, we knew the government had commissioned into the Brittany Higgins rape allegations, but sparked by that anyway. One was from Stephanie Foster, senior public servant, looking at procedures and processes to make Parliament a safer place so there'd be you know, independent workplace complaint mechanism, all that sort of thing. Then there were two more in-house ones, one from Scott Morrison's chief of staff, John Kunkel, investigating mm. whether the PM's office or staff in his office had backgrounded against Brittany Higgins' partner. Uh, the other was from Phil Gaitchens, who's the head of the Prime Minister's department, that looks into whether any of the Prime Minister's staff knew about Brittany Higgins' allegations, uh, alleged sexual assault, when they knew it, what they knew, and how many of them knew. Now, interestingly, none of these had been made public in the Parliament until Labor Senators Penny Wong and Katie Gallagher grilled the Morrison government at Senate estimates. The Gaitchens inquiry is incomplete and secret. The Kunkel re backgrounding review, incomplete and secret. Foster review, complete but still secret. Is there any wonder that Ms Higgins and other others are questioning as to whether there's actually any real desire to implement change. Phil, fair question, do you think? Mm. I mean, Penny Wong described it there. Are they trying hard enough on this? Well, they're certainly not lacking in number of reviews, Fran. <laughs> um, there's still the Kate Jenkins review, yeah. obviously. But look, the Gaitjens review, as we sort of had to find out via osmosis mm -hmm. rather than candour, you know, got put on hold for months because the police asked him to, to hold off while they did their criminal investigation because they said it might interfere if Gaitchens is interviewing the same people as the police. And that was just into who in the Prime Minister's office knew about these allegations and didn't pass them up the tree. So I can sort of probably understand that one hadn't been done yet. But at the same time, I mean, there's not a lot of people to talk to. You just exactly. Them, so, did you know? <laughs> just open the front uh, door and say, hey, anyone here, yeah. what did you know? Yeah, yeah. so look, I, I'm not sure. Um, the Foster one, as the Prime Minister said, was... There's a lot of overlap with Jenkins. He said he'll release that next week, even though he's been sitting on it for a while. But he he said they'll adopt the recommendation of the independent complaints thing. Um, the one that caused the most consternation was the Kunkel review, and this was to, did the PM's office background any journos against Brittany Higgins' boyfriend, and they tabled that right at the start of question time, I think, again, as a tactic to, to sort of wrong-foot Labor um, because they had a whole bunch of questions lined up on it. So they said, here you go, you can have it, and they they put it out straight in the middle of question time. So it was a probably tactical as much as anything else. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty extraordinary, though, the Gaijin's, you know, cross-examination. He wouldn't even say how many people had interviewed, claiming mm. privacy, secrecy. Some of this, I don't understand how this would have, you know, caused a problem to actually outline some of the parameters here, and yet he didn't. It's a pretty bad look, isn't it? Anything that's secretive for dubious reasons is a bad look, Patricia. I mean, the, well put. I, th I thought the weird thing about the Gaijin's review was Phil Gaijin's hadn't actually spoken to Brittany Higgins yet. Now, yeah, it's it's terrible. You, you, well, you think you would because she put she or David, her boyfriend, or the both of them, remember at the start that they had this sort of dossier of mm -hmm. events as they recollected mm. them. They put out a timeline. 
Right, from the, you know, the alleged incident through to conversations. And, and it had a list of about 30-something people she says knew, right, and at what stage they knew and how they knew. So I would have thought Phil would have gone to Brittany and said, right, you know, when, now tell me about this one and that one. And so the fact he hasn't, I think, is a bit, a bit iffy. Yeah. But, There's a uh, lot of not talking to Brittany Higgins going on, it seems to me, and yes. she wasn't warned that they were going to dump the um, Kunkel Review no. in public either. She hadn't seen that until, I think, around the same time they did it, which, hmm. you know, it's just really disrespectful, rude. I think. Yeah, I think so. Um, again, I think there's a bit of niggle there because she'd gone public or her camp had gone public a few days before with, with her submission to that review, I think to the ABC or something, so the government didn't seem to think she'd mind if they just put it out, but it's backfired in, <laughs> in that sense. But look, I, I guess what's more important is what these things find and don't find. Now, the, the Gaitchen's review has a potential to embarrass people because it, are there people in the Prime Minister's office above those who we know knew and didn't say anything? That could be damaging, so you can understand why they're sort of they're not running 100 miles an hour to finish that one. And yeah, well, the Foster review is probably yeah, a more meaningful review in terms of affecting change. But as we said, there's crossover there with what Kate Jenkins is doing, so you can sort of understand if they're sort of blending the two together. But yeah, the Kunkel review, well, it didn't really find anything in the end. Well, um, let's go to that actually, because I think it that's sort of disappeared. Too. Yeah, it did. Mm. So in question no, time. The yeah. Prime Minister said Kunkel, his chief of staff, couldn't find evidence of the Prime Minister's office bad-mouthing hmm. Brittany Higgins' partner to journalists uh, as a way of kind of, you know, obviously hurting her and him. Undermining them. Undermining them, yeah, and their case. But Labor argues that Kunkel didn't find it didn't happen. He just couldn't find evidence of it. So even the Prime Minister's well, language on this, let's just hear him first. Can the Prime Minister now finally tell us did his office seek to undermine Brittany Higgins' loved ones? My chief of staff found in the negative and I tabled the report. Didn't actually find in the negative, mm. just didn't find, right? Well, he sort of cleared everyone, <laughs> including Brittany Higgins. Look, it's a sort of weird, uncomfortable thing because what happened, I read the Kunkel report, is that Brittany Higgins wrote to John Kunkel, he's the PM's chief of staff, and said journalists, and she named the organisations News.com, The Daily Telegraph and Channel 10 have told me your office is backgrounding against you know, David, her boyfriend. The inference was that he he had a grudge against the government because he'd sort of been marched out of a government job a few months before. And so the context of, in which they raised the allegations you know, through the media in Parliament was a get-back tactic. And so that was the inference behind the, you know, this supposed backgrounding. But the fact is she wrote that letter because some journos had told her that, but she wouldn't name the journos. So then Kunkel... If you read the report, he, he contacts the organisations or journalists who work for those organisations. They don't want anything to do with it. Of course not. And so, well, yeah, but they're, they're prepared to sort of blab that to Brittany that they've been backgrounded. But then the only reason it became public was because Peter Van Oslin said it on your show, friend, on, yes. on Radio National one morning. He said, oh, by the way, I hear yeah. there's been ba-, And that's what put it into the public domain and led to this. Yeah, and I think some of us now have heard that that has been going on and know that has been going on. Well, we could say, yeah, what's up to the journos to say yes and and front up, but why don't the staff just tell the truth? Well, I don't know. I mean, they obviously. I mean, there's got to be it. there's got to be yeah. a truth one way or the other. Yes. So if they've denied yeah, doing it, but I mean, it, but if, but if the journo's are the ones who've made the allegation in the first place, and then not, then they don't want anything to do with it once it becomes a, an inquiry, it's a bit hard, I guess, for for Kunkel to well, find one way Well, except it's the not other. really an allegation, is it? Isn't it? If you're a journalist mm-hmm. and you've been backgrounded, and then you go to the subject and say, "Hey, listen, I've heard this. I've been hearing this. You know, is this true? Is there anything to it?" That's not an allegation. That's just 
Yeah, but using I don't know the information, was, I don't know if that, I don't know if that was the context in which it was put to Brittany. I think it was, hey, you might want to know if they're, they're saying this about you. That, yeah. that seemed to be the imputation yes. or the inference. Yes. I don't know. And, um, you know, I never tell anyone who backgrounds me about anything. Yeah. And, and I never would. I, I can't believe people actually did that in the first place, to be honest. I mean, we get backgrounded every day, every hour in this place by all manner of people about everything. <laughs> most most of it's rubbish, some of it's true, but yeah. from as a working journalist I want to be told everything. I'm I'm the arbiter of what I write. If it's rubbish and um, it's about cross-checking in, and in doing way, all of the checks and balances yeah, we do and, and, and if it's rubbish, I won't trust that yeah, person sure. again. Or, or also gives me also gives me insight to their motives. So it all helps to inform your reporting. I think in um, a way, though, it's a four-page report or something. It's a bit of hmm. a red herring. The more important one is... When did the Prime Minister's office know about this? Yes. Who knew about it? And what did they do about it? That's the Gaitchen's report. And at mm. this moment, we still have absolutely no guarantee from the government that when it is completed, which Phil Gaitchen said would be weeks, not months, mm. it will be released publicly. Shouldn't it be? Oh, absolutely. I'm just surprised it's taken so long. I mean, there's probably about, you know, 50, 60 people in the PM's office. We know, you know, there was Fiona Brown who was... Uh, working for Linda uh, Reynolds at the time when 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 the, when the alleged incident happened, and um, she she and Linda both counselled Brittany at the time, and then Fiona went off to work for the PMO and never said anything. So that that's been documented, but I think she's the only one, isn't she? And uh, there was his principal advisor, Euron uh, Finkelstein, who Brittany Higgins said knew, but Euron says he didn't know, and he's not named in that dossier either. But look, if there's senior people in there who knew, then it could be very embarrassing for the government and quite damaging. Um, so wake the whole thing right up again, yeah. you know. Yeah. So I Let's, you know, can understand why they're not being too forthright about it. No, but but the fact mm. is... Doesn't Brit- make it right. But. No, it doesn't make it right. So, okay, so Brittany Higgins makes her allegations. We are still now dealing with the fallout from that. But what it's done, and this is really mm. worth mentioning, as was revealed this week, is that the Australian Federal Police has now received 40 mm. reports in relation to 19 incidents of possible misconduct involving federal MPs or their staff, including sexual assaults. 15 of them have been referred to state and territory police, while four have been dropped due to lack of offences found within it. That's pretty extraordinary. I spoke to Richard Miles and he said it was appalling, it makes him sad, and it's a much higher number than he expected. I spoke to the Greens leader, Adam Band, and he said... It's a wake-up call in terms of men's behaviour that we have to have conversations about the way men are behaving. It was quite specific about using that language. Phil, this is huge, right? Like this is way beyond Brittany Higgins has really been held up because she's gone public, but this is a mm. bigger issue. Well, it is, and, and thankfully it's now, you know, the, the boil's been lanced and it's all out there. And, you know, hopefully that's the end of it. I had a brief conversation with Brittany Higgins well, ages ago when this first started, and I said, look, you know, whatever... Whatever comes of this, you're going to be short of one thing that what you've done is you've changed this place, <laughs> finally. You know, whether you get personal justice for yourself, you can always sort of rest easy that you, you would have affected change. And, uh, and, and, and that's, you know, I'd be very surprised uh, now whether this sort of behaviour is anywhere near as rampant as it used to be and has been for a long time because it's people talk about it now and it's out in the open. Yeah, and thank God it is. And, Phil, just finally, uh, another major story this week, really the heat was on Labor for most of the week, and that follows that mm. by-election, the state by-election in New South Wales and the Upper Hunter. 
where the Nats won. That's not really a surprise. They've been winning it for 90 years. But yes. Labor's primary vote went backwards big time. Now, Labor had already got a shock at the last federal election in some of the federal seats around the Hunter, um, you know, big whittling away of their primary vote. Now this, it's terrified some of them. We've got Joel Fitzgibbon, who's a local member, saying Labor's got to wake up. Another local member saying, a federal member saying they're, you know, sleepwalking over a cliff. Is it right to describe this as a wake-up call to Labor or, you know, just just uh, putting up in neon lights this problem (laughs) that Labor has of managing this, um, you know, the resources seats and the issues there and the sensitivities there and the demands in a lot of inner city seats around the country for Labor to be stronger on on energy policy? You've been been around longer than me in this game. How long do you reckon we've been talking about this problem with Labor? Uh, Uh, Yeah, forever, and it gets more (laughs) acute, and the pressure on Labor from the left (laughs) and the right gets more acute too. It, It really does, doesn't it? And it's now quite accentuated over energy, and again, with the tax cuts, it was writ large at the last election when Bill Shorten went to that port in Gladstone and that guy in high vis who earns 200 grand plus a year you know, got up him for not backing tax cuts for higher income earners. There's a, there, there's a guy, you know, laboured to his bootstraps once upon a time and was emblematic of how Labor had lost that demographic in return for, you know, appealing to the other end of the spectrum. And they just seem to be walking into that same trap again this time, uh, you know, with that power station announcement and with their, their indecision over the stage three tax cuts. It's the easiest thing in the world to point out and it's the hardest thing in the world, <laughs> hardest thing yeah. in the world to solve. I mean, you talk to the Libs, they have a similar thing, but because they're in coalition with the Nats, they can manage you know, the, the opposing ends of their spectrum more easily. You can let the Nats have a bit of run in the top paddock and a, appeal to that demographic, and you can have your Josh Frydenbergs and your Tim Wilsons and your Trent Zimmermans work the other end, and, it, and it's a bit simpler. But Albanese identified this problem in his first speech. Exactly. His first headland speech, but he's not been able to really do anything about it. And, look, I know Joel Fitzgibbon's very outspoken, but he does actually speak a lot of sense. He said, unless you get these people back, you're not going to get in the government. And if you don't get in the government, you can't do anything. And it's really no more complicated than that. Well, so that's reckon... true, but you have to keep yeah. everyone in the tent. Well, and when, when I said earlier about mm. left and right wing, what I meant was left and right flanks in the electorate because you've got the yes. Greens sniping mm. at those inner city Labor seats yes. and then you've got other parties, well, the government coming to the middle and then you've got One Nation and Shooters and Fishers yeah. on the outside. Picking so, you off at the right. Yeah, yeah. it's tough. That's right. And we saw the, the upper hunter, One Nation, got a big vote again. And that would have been Labor people like they did in Queensland at the last election. You know, members of the AWU and the AMWU, hard hat workers. It's a bit like doctor's wives in reverse. They can't go straight to the opposition, so they go, go via a third party. Look, I don't know what the answer is, but I think they've got to take a punt and, and get back to that sort of recapture a bit of the old industrial right. I mean, those those people have gone from the Labor Party, you know, the Martin Fergusons, the Kim Beasleys, the Laurie Brettons, that type of figure. They're a dying breed. And, you know, Fitzgibbon's probably one of the last few left there. And he, look, he made a good point last week, and you know, those, those leadership rules that Labor now has. Uh, which gives the caucus, uh, sorry, the rank and file 50% of the vote. Now, the Labor rank and file is very left-wing, just like the Liberal Party rank and file is very right-wing. If, if the Liberal rank and file voted for the leader, you'd get Erica Betts. Yeah, not, neither rank and file of either major party are centrist. And and so what you're seeing in Labor now, anyone with any aspirations is having to is having to lean left. And I look at them, I look at them in Parliament, and they are just all, with the exception of probably no more than half a dozen, they've all come through the staffer, uh, you know, staffer lawyer lawyer ranks, union ranks. Um, there's no one there's paid a wage. 
uh, run a business, very few. And, and I just think they're getting dangerously sort of, um, you know, homogenous, if mm. you like. Mm. I think that's a really good point, Phil. And mm. we are out of time. I'm so glad you've come on the podcast this week. Um, I'm going to be in lockdown. So you have, oh, you live your best, thing. you yeah. live your best life in Canberra, okay? Good See you. Mate. See you, Phil. Thanks. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for our question time, and this week's question comes from Elliot, who writes, It strikes me that a lot has been written about Morrison, the politician, and his rise to the Prime Ministership in 2018. Yes, we know very little about him personally, what motivates him and his vision for Australia. His government seems to be more focused on dominating the news cycle and winning the next election than actually trying to change the country in a meaningful way. He seems more interested in coveting power than using it. My question is a simple one. Why do you think Scott Morrison wants to be Prime Minister? Ooh, deep. <laughs> deep. Mm, Elliot, I'm sure if you ask Scott Morrison that, he would say to make Australia a better place. So he would probably say, turn Australia into a place where, you know, if you get a go, you have a go. That would basically sum up why he's ultimately here to do his best for Australia and the Australian people. What we do know about this Prime Minister is he is a very pragmatic Prime Minister. He is not particularly ideological and he does not have a particularly either ideological ideological or well-drawn policy vision for the country. His vision is more about keeping things ticking along. And if, if the country's ticking along, that means people are ticking along into jobs and, you know, the economy's flowing and people are, are reaping the benefits of that. Businesses are doing well and a high tide lifts all boats, that kind of thing. But it is true. And the Prime Minister said it himself at the beginning of this year, actually, that, you know, his vision this year is really no more than getting the vaccine rollout um, happening as well as it could, mm, jury's out on that, and not much else. So he doesn't have a lot of big policy issues. All politicians are in the place to some degree for power. But I think it's fair to say that in recent times, politics and political parties, we've had so many changes of leader, they really haven't had much time to be there and interested in much more than anything about staying in power ultimately. So down the track, they can force some change. But what is the change that this Prime Minister wants to bring? Mm. I think it is unclear. Yeah, I think it is. And remember, that was a big theme of the last election campaign, which to me feels like 3,000 years ago, um, <laughs> emotionally, physically, spiritually. But that was one of the big question marks. What's your agenda? Remember, because mm. the campaign was all against Labor's agenda. That's it wasn't right. for their agenda. So then, the first period of his prime ministership was people like me and you, Fran, going, "Okay, so what is it now?" Because you won, right? The miracle election, and then COVID happened, and so now I think. Uh, to be fair to the Prime Minister, it has become a health and economy management job of a pandemic, and you'd expect that. And it really means that the onus has come off him to actually have an agenda in some way. The agenda is keeping COVID out, keeping yeah, people People jobs. want him to manage this. That's yeah, what that's everyone right. wants. But here comes the big question. Labor says, and I think this is a really good point they make, that the pandemic has changed everything, that this is the opportunity to actually, if you like, remake Australia or think about mm. the things you could improve. And on that question, I don't think he's risen yet. And I say yet because he may. 
to the challenge. I think it has only been about managing and not about articulating what happens next. That's a big issue. I think that's fair. And we've talked about this before a number of times about whether you can sort of walk and chew gum at the same time. And the independence uh, constant refrain is, what about the Independent Commission Against Corruption? We could use that for sure. I mean, every month there are, you know, issues that you you know would have been before a federal ICAC had we had one. There's also climate and energy policy. And the government says it has one, but it's pretty piecemeal and not terribly ambitious. And there is a hankering for more ambition. But overall, I think Scott Morrison has judged and he's probably right that the broader electorate, first things first, want him to manage this and he's really not risking his arm beyond that. No, that's absolutely right. Look, Fran, just before we say goodbye to to this week's uh, episode of The Party Room, one more thing I want to discuss before we go is the Uluru Statement from the Heart. It's been four years since the statement and this week it's been nominated for the Sydney Peace Prize, which is really significant. Now, I think it's worth reflecting on four years since Uluru the fact that, that that call for us to do better as a country, for constitutional reform, for a Makarata, for a truth-telling process, for something substantial on this pathway to reconciliation. There's been a lot of inertia on this, and I think the, the awarding of this prize just brings it sharply back into focus that while for obvious reasons we are concerned by immediate crises like the pandemic, health, economy – that as a country, we we will achieve nothing if we don't reconcile with First Nations people and if we don't do something substantial to provide power to our most dispossessed people. And so, you know, we know that the, the government's been co-designing a voice. They want it to be legislated. The people who are pushing for Uluru still say, yes, we, we want a voice to be defined, but we need a referendum. And I think this week that came sharply back into focus. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, inertia in one sense in that, you know, 14 years on from when John Howard first declared that, you know, he would, if elected in 2007, within 18 months, have a referendum to make sure we enshrine recognition of the first Australians in the preamble to the constitution. We are no closer to constitutional recognition. We are certainly no closer to a referendum. In fact, I think we feel further away right now than we did maybe a few years ago. And that's the critical issue here. The government, they are doing stuff. There is this co-design process. There's been a lot of people meeting, a lot of people talking. But the fact is, a lot of the people who are meeting and talking are calling for one thing, and the government seems to be putting the brakes on that. So they're calling for the voice, for instance, to be recognised in the body of the constitution. The federal government is nowhere near that point yet. They're still, they're still trying to morph that into a legislated voice to the government, which is very different to a constitutionally enshrined voice to the parliament. So I think there's still a standoff on that point. But the issue is clarified, at least. I think we have a very focused issue now for the country to be debating. We've just got to get up to the point where a government or hopefully both sides of parliament will help lead this and get some action on constitutional recognition. It's time. It's long overdue, isn't it, Fran? Well, thank you so much for listening to this podcast again. Send your questions in because we love getting them. You can tweet using the hashtag The Party Room or email your questions uh, as a voice note, actually, if you're feeling adventurous, to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. You know how to do that. There's a little voice thing on most people's smartphones. You press record. It's pretty good quality. We actually put it to air. Like, the world's changed so much. It's very exciting. So it, then we can is. hear your voice. It is exciting and you're also clever. And remember, you can uh, tune in, follow us on The Party Room on the ABC Listen app or on your favourite podcast app. 
Oh, Fran, I will be locking down, sending you random pictures of me dancing from my living room all weekend. You are so lucky. I can't wait to speak to you next week. Oh, PK, perhaps we can sort of dance by remote. <laughs> Let's do it. See you, Now that's a video. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.